grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Let me push my other button here. There we go. My name is Charlotte, and welcome to California Haunts Radio. I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so. We have got a great guest. He's uh, returning, our old friend, uh, Dr. Robert E. Farrell. He's going to be talking about the great flood in Noah today, and I'm real excited to talk about this. Last time we had him on, it, it was incredible. talking ufos and aliens and stuff with him so i'm really excited to have him on again i am the owner of the california haunts paranormal investigation team based out of sacramento california you can find us at www.californiahaunts.org but this right here this is california haunts radio this is our favorite thing to do is to have guests on and talk paranormal or talk serious stuff like my guest earlier or my guest yesterday rather um renee who uh whose sister had been um murder due to um, spousal abuse so uh you know we do a little bit of everything here so it's paranormal and stuff and stuff like um legal stuff and all kinds of stuff new stuff anyway you can find this show and all my other shows at californiahauntsradio.com and uh i'm also now um because i've been doing this show almost 20 years kind of scary to think yeah almost 20 years in that blog talk radio the majority of them are on blog talk radio and uh so i'm in the process of archiving all the blog talk radio shows onto the uh, californiahauntsradio.com website so very soon here i'm going to have at least uh two years done of that so you'll be able to go back through all those shows as well anyway i want to thank you guys for coming and uh i'm excited i'm excited to talk about noah today and so without further ado let me get my guest Hello, sir. Hi, how are you, Charlotte? Good, how are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you. So for a quick refresher for everybody, tell everybody about you. Uh, Well, um, I spent about 20 years in industry and engineering. Uh, The last five of that was uh, as vice president of engineering. And uh, one day I got a letter from a recruiting company from Penn State University. They wanted to start a plastics program, and I happened to be in the plastics industry. And uh, did I know anybody who wanted to teach? And it took me a month to figure out it was me, so I applied and got the job. And then for 15 years, I worked at Penn State University at the Erie campus, developing their plastics program. Then after I retired, um, because I had done a lot of research into UFOs and everything, I, I wanted to share my knowledge. So uh, I was convinced, by the way, that they were using gravitational field propulsion. So uh, I then um, thought, well, when I retire, I'm going to try and get more physics under my belt and figure out how they do it. Uh, but somehow I felt compelled to write books to try and convince lay people who never think about UFOs that guess what? They're here and they're for real. And I felt by using a science that they probably had in high school to explain how they do it they do, uh, they wouldn't be so magical and people would start to accept them. And uh, so, but uh, tonight we're going to talk about Noah's Flood and uh, th- that as a spinoff from my research into UFOs. 
And uh, I actually wrote a book called The Science Behind Noah's Flood. And I can attribute uh, that. that whole effort, yes, there it is, <clears throat> to uh, the late Zachariah Sitchin. He's one oh. that kind of got me started on uh, the, the ancient aspects of uh, UFO encounters. And uh, so I did some research and uh, based on what he had said about a lot of things, actually, one of the things he said was that Noah's flood was a, a Sumerian event. And he said it, it thought it occurred about 13,000 years ago mm -hmm. as a result of uh, the huge glaciers that had built up on Antarctica. And uh, it, in his research, he had uncovered the fact that there was a large uh, rogue planet called Nibiru that came by every 3,600 years. And he thought that it was the near approach of Nibiru that triggered uh, the the flood that, that happened by releasing all this ice that was cascading into the Indian Ocean, creating mega tsunami. Mm -hmm. So that got me started. And he wrote that book, uh, the, the, well, he wrote, wrote a series of books, but the, the 12th planet was the one that got me started with him, which he wrote in 1976. And he made some amazing claims that people didn't believe. But uh, I applied 40 years or 46 years of science that has occurred since he wrote the book. And in fact, I dedicate a whole chapter to uh, Sitchin's uh, pronouncements, what, what he said that the, the Sumerians believed and what happened. And uh, pretty much proved that everything he said was correct. And in regards to Noah's flood, as I said, I did a little more research. We have more current science available. And uh, so that, that got me started on uh, on the rewriting basically what happened with Noah's flood and, and during the flood and the aftermath. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Um, was there a world flood? There, well, there's a lot of stories uh, from different cultures about floods, supposedly were world floods. But the particular one that is, is uh, the, the focus of the story in the Bible was a local flood okay. that that occurred uh, in Mesopotamia, which is where the Sumerians lived, <clears throat> and uh, and that's the one that that was caused by a mega tsunami. Actually, it was a result of a mega tsunami. So it was a local flood. It was not a world flood, and uh, so the world wasn't covered with water that allowed Noah to land on top of Mount Ararat. Okay. Um, it was it was a local flood, a mega tsunami. It was a significant flood for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, really significant. There's only a few other instances that we have evidence of of tsunamis that that uh, where the where the surge was as much as a thousand feet above sea level. Most most times, it's the surge is just a few hundred feet for mm -hmm. mega tsunamis, and for a regular tsunami, it might just be less than a hundred feet. What would it cause the tsunami? I mean, could it have been? Because uh, I was watching a National Geographic thing last night with yep. Albert Lynn, and he was looking at yeah, the, you know, looking at some floods over in in uh, South America, and he had mentioned uh, super El Ninos. Well, uh, first of all, the the sea level is rising for several reasons. One of which is ice ice is melting and that water runs into the ocean. But the fact that the temperature of the oceans has risen one one degree centigrade, you know, that doesn't sound like a lot, but water, just like everything else, expands when it gets warmed. Mm 
and I did a quick calculation, and um, it, it's, you could get a significant rise in sea level just from that one degree centigrade. And so it could be what I didn't see the program you're talking about, but it could be um, this El Nino is just the warming of the waters sure. that, that causes tidal surges to be greater. Um, but in, in the case of uh, tsunamis, a tsunami mm -hmm. is really uh, the result of energy being released into the water. Okay. And that energy can come from different sources. Uh, it could be an asteroid that crashes into an ocean. Or, uh, or it could be a, a tectonic plate that that shifts, or it could be a huge amounts of, um, amount of um, land, let's say, that, that tumbles into the water. Mm -hmm. In the case of um, Noah's flood, um, which I dated at around 14,500 oh, years ago, roughly, uh, at that time, the sea level was three, 370 feet below our present sea level. Okay. And uh, the Persian Gulf, it, which is relatively shallow, uh, the, the deepest parts are probably less than 200 feet. Uh, so it was actually above sea level. It was a lake, just like the Bible says. And in fact, you can see where it was fed by four rivers and that drained down into the Indian Ocean. Mm -hmm. But in Antarctica at that time, the ice along the eastern edge, which is the edge of that faces the Indian Ocean, was up to uh, eight miles thick, 45,000 feet. It was thicker than the, the height of Mount Everest. So it's a huge amount of ice, which is why the sea level was so low. Wow. And at that time, 14,700 years ago, we entered a warming period called the Bolling Alaride. Mm -hmm. And that, that warming period caused the ice to start melting. What happens first is there's usually ice sheets floating on the water around a body of a, 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 a let's say an island or, or even Antarctica, these ice sheets could be a thousand feet thick or hundred feet thick, whatever, but they're floating on the water. And the first thing that goes when you get a warming spell is these ice sheets start breaking up and they float away. And in fact, a few years ago, there was a huge one uh, in, in Antarctica that broke up. It was about the size of the Rhode Island and it, it broke up in a matter of a few weeks. And now, so you would say, well, that ice is floating on the water, so that's not going to affect the sea level. Right. And that's true, not much. But the significant thing there is the, the ice sheet is grounded on land, and it's holding back the glaciers that are marching into the sea. And when that ice sheet disappears, the ice, the glaciers begin marching much faster. And you couple that with the fact that uh, the warming spell creates uh, water uh, through pool on the surface of the glacier and it runs down through cracks and now it starts lubricating the bottom of the glacier so suddenly these glaciers which eight miles high maybe are rushing into the sea and i think you've probably seen photographs of these glaciers as they cavity ca are calving into the water right. a right. huge mess can you imagine a cubic mile or eight cubic miles of ice which center of gravity would be four miles above the sea level cascading into the ocean the amount of energy that would release is just tremendous absolutely and so you would think well that's a big splash sort of yes but what happens that energy then is uh rushes underwater mostly uh and when it comes to land on the other side of the indian ocean which would happen to be the entrance of uh the straits of hormuz uh it it creates a huge surge and in this case, probably at least a thousand feet. 
So they mean, that means that the water then is, is going to surge above uh, the, the Persian Gulf and travel along inside the Persian Gulf. And there's Noah sitting there on the northern edge of the Persian Gulf, which is a lake, as I said. And here's this huge surge coming his way. Mm-hmm. And uh, he is, according to the myth, he's forewarned about that. And so he builds his ark. Okay. And, um, and he gets carried uh, northward between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers and um, comes aground someplace. And, uh, of course, people think that he, he actually came aground on uh, Mount Ararat. I, I don't think that's true. And originally, the original story didn't say that anyway. Um, but he came aground. And in fact, I think he came aground near the southern border of Turkey. Okay. And, uh, and, and then kind of wandered up into Turkey. First thing you're going to do when you experience something like that is you head for the high ground. Right. And so that would be Turkey. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I think that's what happened. And what, uh, well, a lot of, I'm sorry. Real quick, what 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 you know what what proof is there that there actually was a flood? Well, actually, uh, the story in the Bible, Noah's flood, uh-huh. uh, was considered to be an allegory by most people up until about the 1920s, when Sir Leonard Woolley, who was a famous archaeologist, and the war was over, World War One was over, uh-huh. and uh, so he started to dig in Ur because it was believed at that time. In fact, some people still believe it that Abraham was born and raised in the city of Ur, which is on the northern tip of the Persian Gulf. So he started digging there. And uh, now now that area uh, between the Tigris and Euphrates periodically gets floods, you know, like spring thaws from the mountains. So that's normal. But he was digging and he kept digging deeper and deeper. And he got down 41 feet into the salt. And as he was digging, of course, he was recovering broken pottery and things that you would, an archaeologist would normally find in a dig. But when he got down about 41 feet, he suddenly ran into a layer of silt. And um, he determined that that silt was caused by a flood coming from the south, which would have been the mega tsunami. Sure. And uh, they, they actually found a body that had been buried on the top layer of that silt. And in fact, it was sent off to the museum in, um, Philadelphia, which, okay. by the way, was kind of interesting. This they packed these 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 skeletons that he found. It was packed in in uh, wax. That's normal. And then they put it in a crate and they ship it off. And one of the comp- one of his funders was the university uh, in Philadelphia, and uh, so they received this body, and dutifully they put it in the basement, you know, to store it. And it sat there for like sixty years down in the basement. And then about 2012, uh, the university d- decided, you know, we should start digitizing everything. So they started pulling things out of the basement and digitizing it. And so when they opened the crate and found this, this skeleton in there, they actually did a carbon dating. And they dated that skeleton to have died 6,500 years wow. uh, ago. So in other words, the top layer of the silt that, uh, that Woolley had found uh, was about at a period in time of 6,500 years ago. But that silt was deeper. It was 11 feet deep. And he kept going until finally he got beyond the silt and got back into finding things like broken pottery, which was the Neolithic period 
that occurred before the flood. Very interesting. Um, yeah. These stories that the, the that you put together for them. I'm not saying stories, but but the information you're giving me. Now, they, the Sumerians didn't invent writing for a long, long time. So how did these things get passed down? That, that's a good question. You're right. Uh, <clears throat> I date the flood to have occurred around 14,500 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there, a lot of the information we have on that flood, because it was a very important flood. It, it's a turning point in the history of humanity as far as the Sumerians were concerned. Right. Uh, and so... 14,200 or 500 years ago, whenever, they couldn't write. Mm-hmm. But yet, somehow it got recorded, let's say, 6,000 years ago when writing was invented by the Sumerians and it was inscribed on clay tablets. So how did it survive the, the time period from 14,000 years ago to 6,000 years ago? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think what it was, it was um, by oral tradition, um, First of all, the Sumerians were religious people. They had 12 deities and they would have ceremonies periodically. And I visualized that part of the ceremony would be the head priest, you might say, reciting the the story of the flood. Mm -hmm. And so by oral tradition, that knowledge is passed down through history and finally gets into history because anything before writing is prehistory, you know, it's prehistoric. Uh, so I think that's how it managed to survive. And there are several stories that are well known. Of course, the Epic of Gilgamesh uh, on the 11th tablet is, is the story about the flood. Mm-hmm. And then Atrahasis, which predated that, which is uh, also a, a Babylonian version of the flood. And so a lot of information we get is, is by these uh, myths. We call them a myth, but it, mm-hmm. in, in reality, the myth is probably based on truth. Right. In fact, uh, a lot of archaeologists now who are digging back before history are starting to pay attention to mythology because there seems to be a basis for that. Well, you know, I, I, I'm thinking while you're talking to me because you're a man of science. You know, you're doing this research on this book. And my thought is, you know, like you say, Word of mouth, though, the issue with word of mouth is that the stories get bigger and bigger as, as they go. So, which, I mean, do you have to take, like, all you know, like all the different stories and, and just piece them together, you know, find stuff that, that, that corresponds to make sense, or how does that work? That's exactly right. Uh, the, the, when, um, for instance, the Epic of Gilgamesh or Atrahasis, uh, those stories were put together by researchers, Mm-hmm. Uh, who collected bits and pieces of that story, like like from different parts of Samaria uh, or, or Babylonia. They, they didn't just pick up a, 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 a clay tablet and, and there's the story right there. Right. They had to piece it together. You're right. Um, and it's a big job. You know, they deserve a lot of credit for putting this story together. Uh, but it's amazing how similar the, these stories are to the story in the Old Testament of the uh, Noah's Flood. Okay. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Yeah. So, so you say you know fourteen thousand two hundred years ago. Now, my other question is, you know, when you think about that area of the Middle East, you don't think about there being a lot of trees. So when Noah built this ark, where, where did all this this wood come from that, that he built it with? Well, that's that's a good question because I was asking myself when I was writing it. I said, wait a second. 
14,000 years ago, did Noah even know how to build a boat? Yeah. You know, uh, some people in your audience may be old enough like me who remember uh, Bill Cosby. And he did a monologue, a famous monologue where he was uh, he was Noah. And so in his it was actually a dialogue between him and a God, actually. So all of a sudden, God speaks to Noah and Noah says, oh, hi, God. And uh, God says, Noah, um, I have a mission for you. And and uh, Noah says, OK, God, what is it? And God says, I want you to build an ark. And God and Noah says, oh, OK. Uh, one question, though. What's an ark? <laughs> and so they actually built boats back then. In fact, I had to research that. And um, there was uh, in the. Uh, Smithsonian actually some work, work done by some researchers in Smith, Smithsonian had determined that even 18,000 years ago mm-hmm. people were able to build boats but they weren't the boat like you see in the picture of Noah's Ark no right. way could he build that okay um, what was built 18,000 years ago were boats built from uh, wooden sticks basically tied together with skin and uh, in the case of uh, uh, in the Sumerian area, it would have been sticks that were would be tied together maybe by reeds, and then it was sealed with pitch, so okay. it was watertight. And they were not the long boats like you see, you know, when you see the picture of Noah's Ark. They were round boats. They were. It reminded me of the inner tubes. When I was a kid, when we wanted to go swimming in the lake, we'd go to the filling station and get an old inner tube and put a patch on it, mm-hmm. and uh, that was our float. So these these round boats were uh, were uh, reminiscent of that, but uh, there was a tablet that was found, clay tablet, and translated. Uh, it was written uh, back in the Babylonian period that actually described the the boats that people used several thousand years ago, and they were round boats. In uh-huh. fact, I have a picture of one, several of them, in my book. You know that my book is full of pictures. And cool. it's hard to kind of describe everything in words, right, right, what's, right, right, what's right. there in pictures. But uh, so they were round boats. And okay. according to the description, uh, this boat was like 200 feet in diameter. So it was a significant boat. It had 30 ribs of wood. And then, as I said, tied together with reeds and, and pitch to make it watertight. So it was a big boat. No question about that. And he could build that. Um, and according to mythology, you might say, well, how could one man build that? Well, in, in one of the stories, uh, mythology, I don't know if it's Dr. Hasis, um, uh, he is instructed um, to build a boat. And, and, and the question is, well, how, how can I build that? And he said, well, you are the leader of that community. You know, you go to the people and you say, it's important that you build this boat. And, and they might say, why? And they say, well, because of all these famines and everything we've been having and the bad luck that we have, it's because the God is mad at me. And if you build this boat, I can sail away and everything will be nice for you. And uh, so that might be how he got the boat built. I don't know. It just strikes me. Well, I mean, what what was it? 14,000 years ago. Um, I have to check my notes. 14,000 years ago. I mean, was the terrain different? I mean, were, were there a lot of trees that, that he could use for wood? Uh, well, actually, that that part of the country, of the world, actually, uh, was much different 
the, the climate okay. was much different. Okay. Uh, and in fact, uh, I, we haven't gotten into talking about Gobekli Tepe, which right. is up in uh, Turkey. Okay. Uh, the archaeologists said that back when that was built 14,000 years ago, right. uh, the climate was much different. There would be a lot of trees and uh, a lot of animals for people to hunt because they were hunter-gatherers. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was a different climate. And uh, although the boat would, would have been built down along closer to the southern border, right. and I, I'm assuming that they had more trees down there, too. But they didn't use they made it. I don't know what they used for the wood, yeah, but it had to be significant if it was a 200 well, foot. It had to be for that. Yeah, for that. Yeah. Side. But that's what I was wondering, because, you know, uh, when you see, you know, it's, it's like it's like, again, you go back to Hollywood's version of all this stuff. Yeah. The Hollywood's version of all this stuff. It's desert. Yeah. You know, miraculously, yeah. And you're like, well, where's where's all the wood coming from? Yeah. Uh, Well, actually, that region uh, in Mesopotamia between the Tigris and Euphrates River is is uh, relatively speaking fairly lush. Yeah, because it was a agriculture also. Yeah, Yeah. that's right, and and they did have the periodic floods. Even today, in fact, uh, to the extent that it was a problem, they built a dam up in Turkey to dam the Euphrates. And uh, I'll, later on, I'll get into some significant finds up in that area that cool. relate to my story. That works. Well, please continue. <laughs> okay. So uh, the, we'll continue the story then. Uh, again, a lot of a lot of the stuff you piece together from mythology. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance. Uh, there in the i think after hasis uh the the key character's name was up to Pishtim, and i call him noah because he fits the story of noah so well okay. um anyway uh in the epic of gilgamesh gilgamesh had heard of up and the fact that up uh had had been granted uh eternal life and so gilgamesh was interested in that he wanted the same thing and this is all in tablet number 11. So he goes on a quest because he had been told that uh, Upnapishtim resides uh, at the headwaters of the Euphrates up where the, the tall trees are found. And uh, that would be Turkey. So anyway, eventually Gilgamesh finds Upnapishtim and Upnapishtim tells him how it was he was granted this eternal life. And, and it's basically the flood story. And uh, so he was basically Noah. And uh, because he had managed to save humanity, he was granted eternal life. So, but so that means that, okay, where did Noah go after the flood? And based on uh, that story, I would say that he he probably landed, uh, if you follow the Euphrates River, because he could... He could have either followed the Euphrates River or the Tigris River as the surge is coming from the south. And uh, either one would have worked. But uh, I happened to pick uh, traveling along the Euphrates first. And and, uh, he landed just basically close to the the border with Turkey and then wandered up into a valley or actually wandered up uh, north into an area which is close to where the dam that was built recently. Uh, I can't remember when they built it 20, 30 years ago. And uh, that's where Noah was residing at the headwaters of the Euphrates River in Turkey. Um, And there is a community there um, called Novelli Kori. 
and it has an archaeological site there. And because they were building a dam and that was going to be underwater, just before they completed the dam and the flood, you know, the water started backing up, archaeologists went in and did a, a documentation of what was there. And there were structures there that were turned out to be very similar to the structures that are at a place called Gobekli Tepe, which was only about 20 miles to the uh, east of there. And that that has become known, Gobekli Tepe has become known as one of the most significant archaeological finds in, in history because it is the oldest archaeological monolithic structure dated to about, well, on the surface, because there's several structures, some, some are underground, but on the ones on the surface were dated to be about 12,000 years ago. The archaeologist, the late archaeologist, Klaus Schmidt, uh, said that ground penetrating radar indicated there was more below the surface for a total of 20 rings of stone mm -hmm. and that they may be 14,000 years old, which kind of fits into my dating, right. you know. So uh, Noah was a Sumerian. They were religious people. They, they worshipped the 12 deities. And the structures that were found at uh, uh, Navelli Kori uh, were similar in, in design to the more significant structures that was built later on at uh, Gobekli Tepe. And uh, so I'll give you a chance to ask some more questions. We can talk more about Gobekli Tepe. There's a lot of information yeah, yeah. there. Uh, this is this is absolutely interesting to me. I mean, you know, I'm a history buff, so this is great. <laughs> yeah, well, it gets better. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> Please continue. Okay. So uh, Gobekli Tepe, and by the way, it's, it's, uh, people should Google it and, and look at it. And what they'll find is uh, they've uncovered the Klaus, uh, who passed away recently, a couple of years ago, uh, had managed to uncover, I think, four rings, A, B, C, yeah, four rings. It, they were labeled A, B, C, and D, A being the first ring and the oldest. And what it is, it's a ring of stones. In fact, a ring inside of a ring. But there are columns, and there are a total of t about 12 columns, which I say represent the deities. Uh, but in the center, there's, there's 10 columns in a circle. And I'm saying the size of this ring is maybe uh, 50 feet in diameter. I don't know, maybe 100 feet. But uh, so there are 10 columns. And then in the center are two large columns, 20 feet tall. And carved onto the front edge of these columns is an anthropomorphic figure with hands and a loincloth. And both those columns, I think, represent the two deities, the highest deities in the Sumerian religion. And uh, both of them are facing in a southerly direction. Now, a, a, the two in the A ring, which is the oldest, is facing slightly off of south, more east-south. East and then the next ring in time, which is the B, shifts. they're facing more more directly south. And the C, a little south-southwest. And, and D, a little more south-southwest. And according to Sitchin, the Sumerians believed that there was a rogue planet called Nibiru that orbited the Earth, uh, I mean, orbited the, the sun um, with a period of 3,600 years. And um, Nibiru was the planet where the Anunnaki 
came from, according to the Sumerian myth. And it was the Anunnaki that were their deities and were there and actually created humans, according to the, the mythology. Um, but so if it was a religious structure and if, if every 3,600 years, they would have a main event because Nibiru was coming in sight. And I did a calculation based on the fact that Nibiru uh, had a 3,600 year cycle. And I'm assuming its closest approach was the asteroid belt. And based on that calculation, it would only be inside the orbit of Jupiter for about five years. And it would probably be quite bright. And so you can see it. And, and uh, Sitchin had determined that it would be rising in the southern sky, uh -huh. which is what these two co columns are looking for. They're waiting for Nibiru to appear out of the southern sky. And as time goes on, of course, through uh, the, the orbital um, regressions and everything, uh, they would the appearance would come from a slightly different location in the southern sky, which is why they are faced. In that's my theory, by the way. Uh -huh. No one else has said that, but that's my theory. I'm tying in Sitchin's and his his facts with some of the archaeological uh, information. So, so that's my theory, and. Uh, so this was a religious, they were uh, religious structures. Um, they were built back when uh, uh, humanity were uh, hunter-gatherers. They were Stone Age hunter-gatherers. And, uh, and as Klaus had said, in that region, it would have been rich with live animals. And in fact, a lot of the stones in Gobekli Tempe have uh, symbols of wild animals, like wild boar, things like that. Um, so that's one thing. Now, the thing that really gets interesting, and I, and when I started this research, I, I didn't realize how close it was going to uh, agree with the Old Testament. I really wasn't. It was, blew my mind when I was done how it, it echoes what's in the Old Testament in a lot of ways. So anyway, um, there is a town called San Liurfa which is about, about uh, 12 miles uh, southeast of uh, Novali Cori, where Noah was residing. And also, uh, if you go a little further east, you'd run into Gobekli Tepe, which is overlooking the plain of Haran, spelled with two R's. Okay. And I stumbled across uh, 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 on the Google um, a, a, a travelogue, basically, where the guide, this was in San Lierfa in Turkey, and the guide was saying, come along with me, and I will take you to the cave where Abraham was born. And by the way, it's called San Lierfa, but they call it Urfa, U-R-F-A. And they claim that Abraham was born in San Lierfa, or Urfa. And it fits so well into the story. Mm -hmm. Because in the Bible, Abraham's father, Terah, at some point in time, decides that the family should go to Canaan. And when I first started lecturing on this, I had a map that showed Abraham in Ur, which is what uh, Sir Leonard Woolley thought. You know, he thought that, uh, like everybody else, that Abraham uh, grew up in Ur and then migrated to Canaan. But, but in, if you follow the story... If he was in Ur, then he headed off and he stopped in a place called Haran, in the valley of Haran. 
and and then went to Cain and I said, well, why did he do that? On the other hand, if you look and believe that he was really born and raised in San Urfa or Urfa, then it would have been a day's walk to get to the center of this this valley or plain called the Plain of Haran. And uh, at that point, Terah, uh, Abraham's father, because Abraham's brother, younger brother, Haran, had died. And so they got as far as the center of that, that plateau, that, that valley, which, which, by the way, Gobekli Tepe overlooks. Uh, and Haran says, I'm going to spend the rest of my life here. And he did. And so they lived there for a long time. In fact, Abraham lived in the town of Haran until he was 75. By the way, he was 60 when uh, Noah passed away. Mm-hmm. But so when he was 75, God told him to, you know, take the lot and, and go to Canaan. And he did. So that's in the Bible. Also, it's in the Bible. In the Orthodox Jewish religion, it says that Abraham spent some time in the house of Noah and Shem. Shem was Noah's son. Now, if indeed Abraham lived in uh, St. Lirfa, which is only 12 miles from where Noah is, that's a day's walk. Right. That's believable. And and um, what he did, and the other question was, well, look at when when did Noah live and when did Abraham live? And guess what? They overlapped. In fact, when, when Noah died, Abraham was 60. So he easily could have had time and the location to visit Noah at his home. And if you recall, we talked about the fact that there was no writing back then. If you were going to educate somebody, it would be a verbal type of communication. You would t- tell stories, and, and that's what happened. So Abraham was educated to the history and the religion uh, of the Sumerians. So that all fits with the Bible, mm-hmm. and it fits the time frame. There's, there's a big gap, though, that bothers me, and that is the time frame from Abraham to Moses. <laughs> huge and and i think the dates and given in the bible are a little squishy so i can argue with that the other possibility and uh, it doesn't it kind of messes things up a little bit this mega tsunami that occurred 14,000 uh, 500 years ago mm-hmm. uh, happened periodically about every 2500 years the sea level was ratcheting up in stair step fashion up to its present level and so about every 2500 years it was a major uh, what they called it a meltwater pulse and it could have been the second one that was the flood that was noah's flood which would have put that date um more around 11,000 years ago instead of 14,000 years ago mm-hmm. but then uh it, it doesn't tie in with go back go Beckley tepe but maybe the date for, for go Beckley tepe is wrong too in fact, I've recently tried to research how they determined the date for Gobekli Tepe, and there's some debate about that. Because uh, Klaus uh, Schmidt, the, the archaeologist, apparently uh, dated it on um, some of the rubble that was around the site. Mm-hmm. And uh, a true archaeologist might argue, well, that, that's not valid. You've got to actually date the monolith itself. <laughs> you know, So... 
uh, so there's there's some room to wiggle there, but uh, pretty much that's the time period what happens, and um, uh, I guess that's the end of the story. <laughs> <laughs> so Noah settles where is it Turkey? Because like you said, the yeah, he, he... yeah in Turkey. Okay. Okay. Yep. Uh, you can get, get, uh, Google again. Google Gobekli Tepe, and also Google uh, No Valley and No Valley. N O V A L I. No Valley. Uh, Cory C O R I, and with a strange C. Uh, that is the town uh, that uh, the, the the ruins that they is under underwater now because okay. it's flooded since they built the dam. But there, there's information on it. And it is tied in with Gobekli Tepe archaeologically from the, the structure, the design of the structures and things like that. It had these, uh, it, the, the, what I saw in Googling was only one of the tall uh, stones, but there was something next to it. It looked like a hole in the ground where maybe someone stole the second one. But uh, there's a lot of similarities. And uh, <clears throat> the dating let's say is somewhere between 14,000 and, and 10,000 years ago for both of them. You know, right now they're still haggling about that. <laughs> the, but so again, going back to the Bible, um, Noah's three sons eventually went off in different directions. As you may know, Ham ended up going down into Egypt and, and uh, Japheth was going into the Eastern, I mean, Western part of uh, Turkey and, uh, 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 Sham, I think, went down into the Arabian Peninsula and maybe further east. Well, Japheth actually went both ways. But if you look at the track of, of the, these three nations, and, and I found a picture, it was a map in, in the uh, on the internet, where someone had drawn the boundaries of the three nations of Ham, Japheth, and guess what? They intersected at Gobekli Tepe, or, yeah. in, or near Gobekli Tepe. The other thing that's... Uh, interesting is that um they were hunter gatherers originally but around twelve thousand years ago they invented agriculture prior to that they were hunter gatherers and guess where it started right around san Lierfa or huh. gobekli tempe region and it spread from there and i'm thinking maybe when noah's sons left uh they carried the the art of uh, growing wheat which is what what the first plant was mm -hmm. uh, uh, with them. And that's how that agriculture spread. I don't know, but there's a lot more left to investigate on that. Why did people, why is the popular thought that the, the, the ark or the boat landed on Mount Arafat? Well, that uh, it didn't originally wasn't stated that way, but okay. somehow along the line, someone corrupted it <laughs> and, okay. and threw in the area for some reason. Uh, so I can't answer I can't answer that question except that originally um, it was a different mountain which it, right. it could have been that mountain because that would have been right in the path of the surge. Mount Ararat was uh, uh, he could have possibly when he was landing where he landed where I think he landed if he was within 150 miles of Mount Ararat which is 17,000 feet tall he mm -hmm. could have seen the peak of Mount Ararat and 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 here he is floating in the boat or a raft, or whatever you want to call it. And by the way, according to uh, 
Klaus Schmidt, the archaeologist, he said the flood would have affected a region between the Tigris and Euphrates River uh, about 100 miles wide and 400 miles deep going north. And he said anybody on that water would have thought the whole world was covered with water. It would have looked like because you couldn't see land. Mm-hmm. However, as you got further north, perhaps if you got close enough, you might see the peak of Mount Ararat. Ararat. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I was wondering. Um, this is the, the this is interesting in that you you think out of the box, and that's what's cool. You think out of the box. You, you know, you're looking at all this other all this other information. You know, to, to put it all together. Yeah, it how has to. It has to go together. How long did it take you to do all this? Uh, years, <laughs> years, I would say. I don't know. I've been retired longer than I want to admit. <laughs> <laughs> Have you uh, had a chance to to go to go there to look? Actually, uh, we had planned to go to see Gobekli Tepe about a year and a half ago, but then coronavirus hit, and so we decided, you know, it may not be the safe time to go there because different countries were treating the virus differently. It's still on my bucket list. The other thing uh, I want to go back since um, I finished the alien log number four, the subtitle is the Antarctic affair. Mm-hmm. And I did a lot of research on Antarctica and uh, I, that's on my bucket list to go to Antarctica. Uh, I want to go back to Peru where I, I, they discovered these amazing bodies. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, uh, in my revised edition of the science behind alien encounters, uh, the very last chapter is dedicated to the bodies that were found in Peru, which I believe are, are alien bodies. Really? Yes, uh, really. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, there's two different species. We, I don't know if we talked about that last time, but we I don't can. Know if we did either. Well, it, it's amazing. It, it is. Uh, a lot of your uh, listeners may be familiar with um, Jaime Masson. I, I, you, I don't know, but uh, he's very famous um, out, of, out of Mexico. He really is. Right. Um, and anyway, I went to a lecture back in uh, November of 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it was a series of lectures, but Jaime had given a lecture. It was the first time he had given this in the United States, but he was, he lectured about the discovery of these two different species of uh, bodies found in Peru they were dis- they were discovered by grave robbers and and came forth uh, around the uh, latter part of 2016 and in 2017 uh, Jaime and some other researchers went down to investigate and the thing that makes it unique is both species are tridactyl and when i saw that at his lecture i'm thinking wait a second tridactyl so if you count their fingers and toes that's 12 and the sumerians 12 was a very significant number for them. For the, That's the reason we have 12 months in a year. That's okay. the reason we have two sets of 12 hours in a day. That's the reason uh, they would divide the circle into 12 sets of 30 degree angles and a triangle into uh, 12 sets of 15 degree angles at, or whatever. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, 12 is important. And I'm thinking, and they had 12 deities. And I'm thinking, I wonder what the Anunnaki looked like. Did they, were they tridactyl? And to, to tie uh, Samaria with Peru, B, 
because of these tridactyl uh, beings mm -hmm. really intrigued me. And in fact, in Bolivia, just south of Peru, they had discovered this bowl that had cuneiform writing ins inscribed in it. And it had been buried in a field, a farmer's field, and apparently, according to the story, he dug it up and was using it to water his sheep. But it's, uh, it's, it, it appears to tie Samaria with um, Peru and, and Bolivia, that part of the world. That is cool. Well, so there's two different species. Uh, one of them is only about two foot tall, and there's several bodies that they found. And they were all preserved in a um, mixture of oil and uh, diatomaceous earth, which is a very good preservative. The smaller species, they dated, carbon dated to have died about 1,100 years ago. And then the other species, which is very human looking, it'd be about the height of an average woman, uh, except and looks very human, except for tridactyl, long, three, three long fingers and long toes. Mm -hmm. uh, the DNA on her, she was female. Uh, they said this, she's about 25% human DNA. Mm -hmm. And then the smaller species doesn't match any known DNA on this planet. And I use both these in my science fiction, my latest science fiction book. The smaller ones are the aliens who are maintaining this mothership that they found buried under a thousand feet of ice in Antarctica. And um, I include uh, images. They're, they're actually uh, computer tomography images that were made of both these species. That it's quite amazing. Uh, I included that as a last chapter in my revised edition of the Science Behind Alien Encounters, and and they are the small species are the centerpiece of my science fiction book, uh, Alien Log Four: The Antarctica Affair. So when you look at the uh, uh, computer tomography of Maria, that, that's the one the, that's very human looking, she looks pretty much human. Mm -hmm. uh, when you look at the uh, computer tomography of the smaller two foot species, they look like they're reptilian. They're bipedal, tridactyl. Um, one of them had eggs in it. And uh, so very similar to uh, a reptile to that extent. Sure. The skin looks something like a reptilian. Um, the very large heads compared to the body size. So probably pretty intelligent. No evidence that they could eat anything or no lungs, no, no, no digestive system or lungs. So I was researching and I discovered after how many years I've been alive, I didn't know that frogs, because by the way, the skeleton structure of these smaller ones resembles the frog, the frog in the sense that if you look at your arm, there's two bones in it yeah. and there's two bones in your leg, uh, you know, side by side. Um, they don't have that. Their skeleton is similar to the bones of a frog, a single bone. Now a frog, I found out, can breathe underwater. It has, it has lungs, but it also, when it's underwater, it can transpire and can take in oxygen and give off CO2 through its skin. Yeah. So I'm thinking these smaller species do that because there's no other evidence of how they could take in energy. In fact, in my story, my science fiction story, 
these small ones talk about energy. You know, when they run out of energy, basically they die. <laughs> they didn't. They don't know what die is. They just know that they're out of energy. They can't move anymore. Right. But they can be fixed. And so they soak in a, a fluid uh, that that they absorb tr- transdermally through their skin that gives them energy. Uh, in my story. So, but anyway, so I want to go back to Peru again. Yes. It's a, it's an amazing place. That would be fascinating. Yeah, because a lot of the stuff I'm seeing, you know, on Nat Geo right now is uh, a lot about Peru. Yeah. You know, and the, uh, stuff, and the stuff they're unearthing there, because there's, there's, there's a lot of archaeological <laughs> stuff going on. Well, as a matter of fact, I was talking with Jaime just a couple of days ago because uh, – I, I wanted to know uh, some some of the latest news on these bodies. These bodies, both species, had been moved around for two years. These grave robbers, it was illegal to have them, okay? So no one wanted to be caught with them, but they were very valuable. There was like a million-dollar price tag on Maria's head by mm-hmm. some wealthy collector. I don't know what country it was from, but so they were. if you wanted to go see them, you, you had to make an appointment, and then they'd blindfold you and drive you off into the desert someplace to see them. So they, for two years, and uh, meanwhile, you know, they're being attacked by the environment because these bodies originally were found in a very dry area close to the the ocean. Mm -hmm. And now they're being transported all over the place. Well, finally, they ended up at at the university in Ica, and that's where I saw them, uh, at the university. It's another in a safe place, uh, although the government still wants to try and get their hands on them. Um, But they're in a safe place, and they're doing some honest research on them let me ask you something along that line um you know with all the stuff that you know we, we were talking about with noah and all this do you think that there was alien uh, intervention in any of that stuff at all desperately uh, definitely yes absolutely as i said i i spent a whole chapter in uh noah's flood book talking okay. about the claims that that uh, Sitchin had made in his books after doing right. research. And in the, the 12th planet, which he wrote in 1976, he talked about uh, Nibiru, which had been, uh, 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 which entered the, the, the influence of the, of the sun. In other words, it was, and back then today, we know that these are called rogue planets and, and they're beginning to think that there may be as many rogue planets as there are large Jupiter-sized planets in the in the universe. They're all over the place, but because they don't radiate energy, you don't see them. <laughs> but they figured out a way to see them with gravitational lensing. So anyway, if had you talked to an astronomer in 1976 and said, well, what do you think about that rogue planet? What rogue planet? I don't even know what a rogue planet is. Uh-huh. But yet Sitchin was talking about it, and he described it. And all the stuff he got by studying the mythology and the culture of the Sumerians and, and other countries and, and pieced it together. So he was he was telling the story about the uh, Nibiru entering uh, Earth, I mean, entering uh, orbit around the sun. He described it according to the Sumerians. Uh, it went retrograde. In other words, it orbited in the opposite direction as the native planets mm-hmm. around the sun. And its orbit was tipped 30 degrees to the ecliptic. In other words, the plane that all the other planets are in. So Sitchin uh, described this based on his readings. They still haven't found Nibiru, by the way. (laughs) But in the story, uh, Nibiru eventually at one point in one of its orbits encountered a large planet called Tiamat. 
that was orbiting where the asteroid belt is today. And um, Nibiru had, I think, 11 or 12 moons. And as it came so close to Tiamat, one passing, the moons crashed into Tiamat, shattered it, and eventually Tiamat was split into two parts, one of which became the Earth and thrown down into the orbit where the Earth is. And the other part is shattered and becomes the asteroid belt. And now that's kind of fantastic, but uh, it, it really answers a lot of questions about astronomy. For instance, astronomers are still scratching their head. They say, well, how come there's so much water on the planet Earth? It's a rocky planet. Given its location relative to the sun, it, during formation, it could never, never have a, a taken on that much water because it would be too warm. So where did the water come from? Well, they come up with all kinds of theories, but none of them worked out. However, if the Earth originally was part of Tiamat, which was in the asteroid belt, uh -huh. the further out you go, the more ice water you find. Ceres, which is the largest body in the asteroid belt, is 25% water ice. If you go further out toward Jupiter, the moons of Jupiter are 50% water ice. So it makes sense to believe then that the Earth originally came out of the area where the asteroids are. Mm -hmm. Now, they've done some research studying uh, the water on Earth, for instance, and comparing it to the water from um, a certain type of uh, uh, meteors or meteorites where they analyze the water in there. And there's a ratio of deuterium to hydrogen. And the Earth has a certain ratio. The moon has the same ratio when they analyze it. And some of the uh, uh, pieces from the asteroid belt that came in as meteors, when they analyze that, it's the same as on Earth. Mm -hmm. They intercepted a comet recently that came out of uh, way out of deep space um, and beyond beyond Jupiter, beyond Neptune, as a matter of fact, and uh, in the Kuiper belt. And it has three times the ratio of deuterium to hydrogen. Because one theory was it sees uh, these um, bodies that are coming in from the, from the Kuiper belt that crash into the earth and, and, and give us the water. Well, that theory doesn't work. But if you say, well, let's say the earth actually really was out in the asteroid belt area, it would have exactly the amount of water that we do have or uh -huh. close to it. So this is all in Sitchin's book that he wrote in 76. Mm -hmm. And and I applied some research that has occurred since that time to prove that everything he has said has been proven. One of the other things he said is the uh, the Sumerians believe that the, the uh, Anunnaki came to, the, to Earth 450,000 years ago <clears throat> to mine for gold. Uh, well, why, why gold? But anyway, that's another question. But uh, so after about a, a by, by, I don't know, 300, let me see, I'm trying to think. They came 450,000 years ago. Um, after about 150,000 years, uh, they had gotten all the easy stuff, I guess. And they apparently didn't like to work, the Anunnaki. They were maybe lazy. And they didn't want to get their hands dirty. So... Uh, one of the members of the science team, I, I like to call him Spock. Enki is his name in the, in the mythology. <clears throat> he was the science guy. He says, well, no worry. I will create a worker bee for you. 
Uh, there, is, there are beings on this planet that live here fine. I, I call them somo, Homo erectus. Uh, but they don't talk. They can't talk, and they're kind of dumb. But I can genetically modify them and imply, apply some of our genetic material to make them smart enough that they can talk, and they can do the digging for us. And that is how humans were formed. And according to Sitchin, that was done in South Africa 200,000 years ago. That's what he said in 1976. <laughs> now, who would believe that? Guess what? Ten years later, some researchers in the University of California studying mitochondrial DNA from 147 women around the world determined that the first human, they called her Eve because of the process they used, Mm -hmm. occurred in South Africa about 200,000 years ago. Not only that, but recently they've discovered a huge megalopolis uh, area in Southern Africa, about the size of Manhattan, where people had been living. And it's near where several hundred ancient gold mines are located. So all this stuff was presented by Sitchin in 1976. And pretty much I verified almost everything that he said. So and when he says that uh, the, the Anunnaki actually created humans, I believe that we are a genetic manipulation that was done by a, uh, aliens, to put this it. I find interesting, and, and, and I find hard to believe, because I, I have friends on the other fence that will tell me that, you know, we somewhere along the line, the Egyptians and, and the ancient people created cranes like what we have now to lift those big rocks up and stuff you know those big stones yeah i find it hard to swallow just like you know when 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 they talk about the water reservoirs that were created on on the sides of the mountains yeah i just find that hard to believe that that a culture that is is, is throwing spears and stone knives and bear skins is going to be able to to, to dig these things into the rock you know what i mean yeah they have have help from outside well, you know, when I was in Peru, uh, I visited uh, an, um, a place. Uh, unfortunately, it was at an elevation of about 12,000 feet. So I was beginning to suffer from, from altitude sickness, but I managed to make it there. Um, and I can't remember the name of the ruins. It's, it's a huge wall built by these rocks. They're huge rocks, and they fit together perfectly. I'm sure you've seen pictures of them. Yes. You, you can't even put a piece of paper between them. Right. And they're they're bulging they like they were made out of clay or something and then stack and uh, so one theory that I heard again uh, because I think they were made by ancient um, by aliens probably uh, is that they they didn't build they didn't haul these huge stones up into place and carve them to fit they actually molded them out of uh, a material that they somehow could make it plastic like. Like they could somehow take rock and make it into a clay and then they could mold it into position, smooth it off, and it would harden and be as hard as a rock. Now, how they hardened it, was it with heat? That was one theory. And the aliens, you know, don't put anything past the aliens. They got all kinds of technology. Who knows what they can do? Uh, But but see, you you think like I do because I just don't – I just don't get how you, how people can, can sit there and go, well, yeah, these guys create uh, it was done by the ancient people because I mean they, they did not have the technology and and this other thing I saw the other night was that there were these these um, 
other types of, of rock way on top of this mountain. And the theory was that, okay, they didn't carry them because there were tons of rocks you know, and, and they were building these walls, that, like you say. Yeah. That somehow they, they got them 12 miles to the, to the ocean and put them on boats to take them over where oh. they needed to go. But it's like, well, what kind of boat is going to carry a rock right. that's rocks that size it doesn't make any sense well again uh, uh, let's assume that there are aliens and assume they have the technology with gravitational field propulsion they can move anything anywhere with yeah. ease they right. can build anything exactly. uh and they could build the pyramids they probably did uh but i i remember reading an interesting thing um um there is uh i'm trying to think with where people it's like mental telepathy uh i can't remember the name of it all of a sudden where people can sit down and and concentrate and kind of put themselves in a in a different time and place mm-hmm. and I, I the name will come to me but uh, it the government supposedly had a team of these people uh and then it's almost there it's coming i can feel it <laughs> uh who uh who could visualize they, they would go into a room and, and they would be given an envelope with a target and they didn't open the envelope, but, but somehow they, they, they were given coordinates and, and they could visualize remote viewing. There it is. Came out yeah. remote viewing and they could, they could analyze, they could see things remotely. And uh, so one of the stories was where a guy was given an envelope and he, he didn't know what the, the target was necessarily. But he started thinking he could see people carving huge chunks of rock out of the hill uh, with uh, some kind of a heat to- tool. And, and they would load it on a raft and they would float it out onto a lake. And then they would lower it down off the raft onto whatever was under there. And they did that in stages until they built a pyramid. <laughs> so who knows? Yeah, who knows? But <laughs> it just strikes me odd, you know, because like, yeah. like when you look at the the stones used to build these pyramids, and then they're up so high, it's like, well, did they have cranes like like this? Like like one of my friends says, or yeah. was it something where they could just lift them, you know, mentally or, or whatever? It's just it's just it strikes me as odd. Just like I said, yeah. the, 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 those water storage things in Peru. I think I think they're in Peru. Yeah. You know, I, I don't. I don't know. I, I don't remember that. I believe it's Peru, South America, somewhere where, on the side of the mountain, there's like ten or fifteen of these things where, where they start, where, you know, where, where they were just reservoirs for water in the rock. Yeah. And how the heck are they going to dig that when when they don't even you know <laughs> they've got the stone knives? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, again, I, I every and then I have to stop and say, okay, now I'm an alien. Let me think of like an alien. I've got all this technology available. How would I do it? And it's easy. <laughs> uh, by the way, speaking of that, uh, my conversation with Jaime uh, Masson a couple of days ago, th- some new news. Uh, if you recall, I told you that I got into writing this book in a way to connect uh, so the Sumerians with the, what was going on in Peru uh, by and, and then using the tridactyl part of this story to, to try and figure out what the uh, Anunnaki looked like. Right. Well, Jaime told me that they had found a stone, and he sent me pictures of it. I think he said it was it was in Samaria, someplace or in uh, that region, 
And on the stone was a tridactyl hand crossing a regular hand like that. Huh. Wow. Indicating that uh, maybe there were tridactyl beings in Samaria. Maybe those were the Anunnaki. Maybe, not, uh, yeah, maybe it was. Yeah. And then uh, the other thing in Peru, at one of the highest mountain peaks, they found a stone that had cuneiform writing on it. So there is a connection, I think. And again, uh, thinking like an alien, and I can jump in my little UFO flying saucer. I can go any place I want in a matter of minutes, right? I mean, right. think about what the, what the Tic Tacs can do to back in 2004. Mm -hmm. uh, they can go 60 miles in less than a few seconds. So Right, 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 right. But I, I just find, like I said, I find all this interesting, like like, like the story of the flood, you know, and, and you look at that stuff and, and you wonder, just like when, when they describe Noah building this ark and the animals and, and the weight yeah. that this boat, whatever he built, you know, he was made out of, like you say, sticks. <laughs> all right. Yeah. We'll say sticks, you know. Well, you know what? Bottom line, a giant bird's nest. Well, well, uh, one theory is uh, he was in, Noah was instructed to take the living beings with him. One right. theory is he took the genetic material with him. That would be easier to transport. That would be easier to transport. Oh, heck yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, it was a literal bird's nest is what they say. Well, you know, this 200-foot boat was, was like a giant bird's nest. Yeah. So it's hard. It's hard. It, again, that's another hard to fathom that you could get that much weight on that thing. Yeah. You know? So yeah, I, I I agree with you 100 percent that yeah. there's some alien influence going on here somewhere along the line, which is fine. I mean, it it, yeah. it shapes our world. I mean, there, there's nothing wrong with it. Well, you know, I th I think uh, my whole mission somehow I don't know how I got assigned this mission is to try and make people aware that there is other life out there, mm -hmm. alien life, technologically well beyond us, and probably spiritually well beyond us. Sure. They're watching us, have been here, maybe even influenced us. Perhaps we are a result of what they've done. And they're watching us. And uh, and I think this thing they call disclosure, that time is approaching. And uh, because of what we're doing to the planet, in and, and, and just my lifetime, we, ha we have got us to the point that one more lifetime from now, we'll probably bring the planet to an extinction where all life will be extincted because of what we're doing with the CO2, mm -hmm. uh, you know, raising the, we raised the seawater in my lifetime, one degree. That doesn't sound like a lot, but when you look at the thermal expansion of the ocean with one degree, it's right. a lot. It, it's, yeah. yeah. Uh, and we've, we've uh, wiped out about 60 or 80%. I don't know how many, maybe 60% of all the native wild life forms. Yeah. Uh, we are cutting down the rainforest to make it more expedient to grow what we want to grow and getting rid of the diversity. And uh, I believe that diversity is a very important thing, and we're destroying it. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're destroying diversity of the sea, diversity on land, and it's going to turn around and bite us. And I'm worried that my grandson may not have a future. And I think we can't seem to solve the problem. We're close to the tipping point. That may be the point when uh, they step in, the aliens, with their technology and fix things, I'm hoping. Do you think it's a case where, you know, if, if we do have alien, you know, if this is alien, you know, we're, we're, we're all hybrids, okay? Let's just yes. say that. 
do you think it's a case that the aliens stepped back to see how we would handle things once they got us set up? And now it's just to the point that we're so out of control that that, that, that they know they're going to have to come in and, and spank us all and, you know, and, and fix everything. That's about right. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, and, you know, in my first novel, uh, there's a communication, some talking going on between a human and an alien. And, and uh, where Quellen, who's the alien, is saying, by the way, these aliens live as long as they want. So Quellen, the alien, is a thousand or a couple thousand years old. He's seen right. it all. And so the question was, how could you stand back and watch us have a World War II and destroy 60 or 80 million of our people? And, and Quellen says, well, uh, we, we aren't supposed to interfere with the development of a, of a life form when it's mm -hmm. developing. We have to just step back, just like your kids. If you've right. got a couple kids that are fighting, you got to let them work it out. But in this case, where we are virtually on the brink of destroying our planet and all the life on this planet, I think it's serious enough that they will step in. They won't spank us. I, th I think somehow they'll just step in and say, okay, here's the technology um, and, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to fix it for you. And then I want you to be good after that. <laughs> well, you know, I think back to the to to the flood, you know, to the Noah flood, and it makes you wonder whether or not that was it. Well, you still like you say that 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 mystery planet, but maybe that was something that they did to to kind of pull you know, pull the reins back a little bit too. The flood. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, here's the thing. The oldest mythology uh, about the flood talks about the fact that the the Anunnaki, the aliens, knew the flood was coming. And I think they would know because they've been monitoring what's going on all over the planet. And they would know that ice is about to cave in. So they knew it was coming. But the th here's the thing. When they created the humans, according to what Sechen says about the what he's translated, uh, when they... Uh, first of all, when they the first humans, they had to produce themselves, and they, that wasn't fun. So they made humans so that they could reproduce. Uh, but the problem was they didn't put any longevity on their life, which is why uh, you know people like Noah in that re time of of uh, the humanity, if you didn't live to be nine hundred years old, you were probably a sickly person, you know. Because everybody lived to be 900 or, you know, Methuselah, 969 right. years. It was after the flood that the, the, the lifespan began to shorten. And Abraham only lived to be 175 years. Uh, Moses, 120. And what I think happened is they, they said, well, let's let the flood kind of wipe them out. Because they, they were right. still having kids when they were like 800 years old, multiplying like flies. What are you going to do about that? Well, you know, what are we going to do? Well, you know, there's this flood coming. Let's, we don't want blood on our hands. Let's just step back and don't tell them about it and let the water We're take care of it. Exactly. exactly. And so that's, that was the original story. Then it morphed into uh, Gilgamesh in that story. And now the aliens created the flood to, to, to wipe out evil people, <laughs> basically, you know, no, Noah was a good guy. Right. So that it morphed into that story, and that's kind of the way it's depicted in the Bible, right. in the Old Testament. Right. Uh, so, but I, I, I like the first story. I, I think, indeed, uh, 
they just they with their technology they knew it was about to occur they did have a problem with with people overpopulation people are multiplying like flies and living hundreds of years old and so i think at that point maybe they tweaked our genes a little bit to introduce an aging factor which by the way we're on the verge of undoing with our own genetics we're getting to the point where we are uh we're recognizing the causing of aging and we're doing some things that maybe eventually we can turn that around mm -hmm. and in fact when i gave a commencement speech at penn state the it was a the title was technology past present and future and i gave that in the year 2000 and uh i traced different technologies one of them was medicine i started in 1950 and came forward in 25-year increments like like 1950 their grandparents were graduating and then 1975 their parents were there and then i went into the future and i and i in the medicine thing i showed how um our life expectancy is is increasing and i felt that because of genetics and other things where they can replace our body parts you know that by 2050 people may be able to live as long as they want and that will be the social issue that these graduates may have to face 50 years from then is who should be allowed to die because people would die because they want to die maybe and who who should be allowed to be born and and, and i think that's where the aliens are they live as long as they want um i think uh -huh. uh, and and maybe after a while they they get bored and they say well I want to die, or maybe they have an accident. Their UFO crashes and they they don't survive. Right. <laughs> like you say, maybe they just get bored. Yeah. Well, again, when I was writing Alien Log, I was wondering uh, why would uh, because the nearest star is four light years away, right? And and there's a lot of other stars further out that probably have planets that could support life. So why would you make the long trek to come here and, and and with the possibility that you could probably never return and at least if you returned people would be much older mm -hmm. and and i said well maybe they are so advanced that everything is provided for them they have their shelter they have their food and they've seen every movie that you could ever see so they're getting bored and they say i got it let's get together build this big ship and go on safari and explore the, the solar system or explore the galaxy. And I think that might be where they're at, is yeah, they're explorers. It could be. It could be. Yeah. Wow, this has been fun. It's always fun having you on. Well, thank you. It's fun to be on. It's, it's a blast. I, I had a blast. I learned a lot about Noah's flood tonight, too. Yeah. Uh, there's more research to be done. Uh, but to me, uh, like I said, it blew my mind by the time I was done, how all the pieces seemed to fit together. And yeah. that Gobekli Tepe was kind of the key element there, that, that discovery of that. And, and I don't think in 1976 it hadn't been discovered yet. So Sitchin would not have known about that. Mm -mm. Absolutely. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, you know what? When you get your next book done, we'll have to have you on again. Okay. Well, I, I, I am working uh, and about ready to release the science behind creation of our universe without a big bang we can do that yeah uh i've been working on that for a few years but when i say i'm about to have it, it that doesn't mean it's going to be available next week <laughs> but i'll let you know when it's available absolutely we can yeah. do this again 
if if you want to do it again, we, we can do this. Oh, again. sure, I'd love to. Yeah, That's it's great. a lot of fun, and I'm, I'm glad that you seem to be doing well yourself. Thank I, you. I'm still jealous because you're an Austrian. I'm not. So. Well, I'm soon going to be back in Arizona. Okay. For a few, for a few months. <laughs> yeah, but, but see, Arizona's getting cold weather right now too. Well, relatively speaking, that's not cold. <laughs> you know, in in December, which is at the end of December, was one of the coldest times in Arizona. You have to cover your plants because they might get frostbitten. That's cold in Arizona. That's cold in Arizona. Well, that's yeah. like it's here too. You know. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on. And again, when you get your next book done, let, you know, let me know. Yeah, I will. We'll get you back on. I will. And thanks for having me. And that was so much fun. And I learned a lot from you. Thank you so much. Good. You're welcome. All right. You have a good evening. Oh, how can people find you? Or I forget. Uh, well, uh, go to www.alienlog.com. That's my website. And uh, not only will I tell you how you can contact me, but I can direct you immediately to Amazon where you can buy my books. You won't have to hunt very far. <laughs> Perfect. You can never find the camera. There we go. Perfect. <laughs> Okay. I got a wide angle camera, so everything's like over here and over here and over here. Yeah. Oh well, I only have one, so it's good. Yeah. All but right. I, I I I took my daughter's advice and I'm plugged in directly into the internet now. I'm not Wi-Fi. There you go. All right. So well, I thank got... you very much. You have a good okay. day. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. Okay, guys, that was fun. It's always fun to have him on and talk with him. I'm glad. I'm glad we were able to do that tonight. Tomorrow, which would be technically Wednesday, we are going to have Kelly Sullivan Walden coming on, who um, is is what known as the Dream Doctor, and she wants and she she will be talking about uh, pre dreams that people had before COVID took place, and uh, so that's going to be interesting. Plus, we'll be talking about other types of dreams. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five people because we're equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. And again, um, if you if, if if you like the show and you're watching on YouTube, uh, there's a little ghost down at the bottom right hand corner that has a magnifying glass and he's holding it. And just click on that, and subscribe. The more subscribers, the merrier. Check us out at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. And um, you see that ticker at the bottom? Well, that ticker is because we are a nonprofit organization, and uh, all the everything you see here, all the mics. Uh, computers everything that i use comes out of my pocket and so uh i really appreciate if you could uh slip us a little cash every once in a while keep us going because we want to keep guests like like robert coming on the show and uh yeah anyway i want to shut up now because for me it's 1 30 in the morning or near 1 30 in the morning at this point but uh i will see you guys on wednesday uh which would be technically tomorrow because some of you are going to are, are tuning in right now at uh, the usual time tomorrow, uh, on Tuesday. And <laughs> that's confusing. Ugh. But uh, I will see you tomorrow. Okay? Have a good night.